Welcome to Co-op Energy Talk. I'm Rachel Johnson, the Member Relations Manager here at Cherryland Electric Cooperative. Our topic today is the local craft beverage scene, and I am joined by two guests who uh, are in that scene, but in addition, we're we helped both of their companies as they were getting started through our zero interest economic development loan program. Did not bring them here to talk about the loan program, but I thought I would at least do a shameless plug to get us started. Uh, uh, they kind of come at this scene from different backgrounds and are also in different aspects. So I'm excited to see where the conversation takes us. Our first guest, John Niedermeyer, is the president and brewmaster at Brewery Terra Firma. Mm -hmm. And John has over 25 years of brewing experience. And if your website is to believe, has created over a thousand recipes. It's hard to believe, but those years have gone by, yes. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us and welcome thank to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, I want to just talk a little bit about Brewery Terra Firma. They're Michigan's first agricultural brewery. And one thing I really love about both of our guests today is the ways that they've created a really strong symbiotic relationship between their organizations and the land they're located on. So, for mm. example, with Brewery Terra Firma, you all pull the water from an artesian aquifer on your property yep. that you use to brew. Yep. And then all of the waste products from the brewing cycle get put back into fertilizers and mm -hmm. irrigation to help grow different things on your farm, plants, et cetera, yep. your honeybees and all that, which mm -hmm. is just a super cool cycle of life thing. Yeah. Yeah. Use what you got is kind of our motto. Yeah, it's, it's, I think that's really neat. And, and my second guest today is Richard Anderson, who is the co-founder and chief operating partner in the family-owned Ironfish Distillery in Thompsonville. Uh, prior to opening Ironfish in 2016, Richard worked on several initiatives, all centered around economic development, community development, and supporting small and early-stage companies throughout northern Michigan. Thank you for joining us, Richard. Hey, glad to be here. And uh, Ironfish, as well, is uh, on a working farm. And my understanding is it's the first working farm in Michigan solely dedicated to the practice of distilling small batch craft spirits. And so far, we think uh, the, the immediate Great Lakes. Wow, that's, that's really neat. And, and so you grow all your own non-GMO grain and then source any additional grain you need from like-minded Michigan uh, farms. Is that's that right? right? Yep, we're working with uh, farms as far away as uh, Marquette uh, County. That's awesome. Up in the Upper Peninsula. And one thing that you're really committed to is kind of sustainable water practices. And so you, um, you look for that same commitment with your other partners. And I have to say that one of the first conversations uh, that I had in looking for advice was uh, calling John. And yeah, that's fi right. finding out what, yeah. what do I do with spent mash because he's been through it before. Mm -hmm. And um, so yeah, we yeah, went yeah. down to... Uh, to his operation uh, to benchmark best practices. So that's, that's the other advantage of, of this region is that there's, there's quite a bit of knowledge and expertise uh, in this sector uh, that was quite helpful to us. Awesome. So our, my final and uh, always trustworthy guest today is our general manager, Tony Anderson, who does not brew or distill anything, but I have at times witnessed him drinking both beer and whiskey. I've, I've consumed a beverage at both of these establishments. So we'll leave it at that. Yeah. So that's that's the credibility factor that, that Tony brings. So I guess just to kind of get us started, I'm really interested in hearing from both of you, what was kind of the biggest challenge you faced as you were trying to start your businesses? Richard, do you want to kick us off since you started a little more recently? Well, you know, our, our, uh, our passion was uh, wrapped around the reality that my brother-in-law already owned an abandoned farm. And um, so 
we were very interested in bringing uh, distilling, uh, uh, going into distilling, but wanted to actually put it on this on this farm, which absolutely had no infrastructure, uh, no city services, and no city water or sewer, and um, we had a pretty complex manufacturing operation in mind. And so really one of the most complex aspects of it um, was um, figuring out how we could be self-sufficient and handle all of those requirements from an environmental and production and uh, waste management um, uh, perspective. So John, you guys are located a lot closer to kind of city infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So what, what was the biggest challenge you faced when you were trying to get started? Um, for me, it was, um, it was mostly education because there was no model for um, an agricultural brewery, and I'm sure exactly what, what um, Richard ran into, too, for the distillation world, um, was that um, here locally, because of the wineries we have, and most of them are located on agricultural property, that um, everyone was really interested in, in kind of duplicating that model and kind of somehow using that exact model for a brewery and you really can't do that because breweries use a lot more water and um, we don't get all of our sugars from juice it comes from you know basically you know um, the contents inside of those little um, grain packets and and stuff so so we really couldn't make that work so we I shopped around at a lot of different townships to try and get them to understand what we we're trying to do just to see if any of the townships were willing to design a, um, an ordinance that would, a PUD that would lie over the, the agricultural piece of property that would allow us to use it differently. Mm -hmm. And that took a lot of time in trying to get people to understand exactly what we were trying to do. Both of you are based on a farm, and it seems like hops and grain and everything is a natural fit with what you do. Why do you think you were the first ones to to do it on a farm? Why, it seems like such an obvious idea. <laughs> why, did, why didn't anybody else do that? Um, we're probably going to say the same thing. We're a little nuts because it, it sure is easier to do it, um, you know, follow a model or something. But um, ultimately, there's I think there's just a lot more advantages in the agritourism industry and to be competitive in our markets. I think um, I think it's a wise choice. Well, okay, full disclosure, <laughs> we're probably uh, late to the game in distilling on a farm because there probably have been four or 500 farms in our region that have been doing distilling. We're just the first legal one. So, <laughs> so, so I would say, in fact, actually, we have a, we have a, a black and white uh, blow-up photograph of a really small, I, I don't know, maybe it was like a brownie uh, uh, snapshot that was brought to us by the grandson of the Wexford County Sheriff, proudly standing next to about 60 stills that he had confiscated during wow. Prohibition. Nice. And actually, there was a still on our farm. Um, so farmers um, probably, this whole community of practice of distilling and converting grain to a spirit to trade, get money, um, make sure you take care of uh, excess grain. Um, there was actually a whole practice community around it. Um, we, I think the reason is we're highly regulated on all sorts of aspects. I mean, the spirit industry is really highly regulated. And then farming is its own 
um, sort of uh, sort of complexity, uh, and then manufacturing um, best practices, and and then getting into retailing and, and destination work, and um, it's a pretty complicated uh, roll up of three or four different kinds of businesses on on a farm. Yeah, and I think, like many things, you can get into it because you're passionate about distilling or brewing, but then when you layer on all the other business aspects, you also have to be very good at whether it's marketing or, you know, the kind of the strategy behind how you build your business. But I was going to ask you, Richard, did you run into any zoning or ordinance issues when you were trying to establish Ironfish, or or did that, was that pretty seamless? Well, you, you know, the irony here is that my, my actual background is urban planning, and, um, uh, we are in a township that is one of the few in Michigan that is, remains unzoned. So we had no zoning um, uh, uh, thresholds or process or applications to actually go through. Okay, it's a little easier. So, John, you've been in the kind of craft brew industry for quite a while. A long time. What's the biggest change you've seen over the years? There's actually been quite a few. Um, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of surprise swing in the popularity of particular stylistic um, beers. Um, none of us 20, 25 years ago had any idea that the industry would ever turn and do what it's doing now. Um, it's just gone crazy. Um, you know, I think they were projecting at the beginning part of this year, we have somewhere around 350 breweries in Michigan now. Um, when I started, there was, um, geez, we were, we were trying to hit 100. You know, we were in like the 60s range and stuff. And they projected at the beginning of this year that we were gonna, they were going to add another um, 50 or 60 breweries before the end of this year are going to open in Michigan. And now they're saying they're gonna be, it's going to be closer to an additional 100. So, I mean, it's just gone absolutely berserk, and no one, none of us ever really, you know, we we talked about it back in the day when, you know, we would say, boy, wouldn't it be great in Michigan that the Summer Beer Festival down in, which was in Livonia at that time, was, we thought, you know, we, the Brewers Guild wanted to get 60 breweries. If we could <laughs> get 60 breweries, man, that would be so cool. And, uh, man, it was hard to get 60 yeah. then. And now so. you're adding six, more than 60 this year. A year, yeah, yeah. it's crazy. What what point is there too many? What's the saturation point? Um, no one's really sure. Um, uh, some people think that we're kind of in a beer bubble right now. Some people think that um, that all of the breweries are are being supported easily by all the clientele, and that there's more room to grow. Um, it's really anybody's guess. I mean, there's there's got to be a cutoff point, but <clears throat> being that we're an agricultural brewery and the only one in Michigan, that makes us really unique. And I think um, we probably don't sweat it as much as some places, uh, all the new opening breweries in Grand Rapids and Kalamazoo and stuff like that probably do. So mm -hmm. the answer is no one really knows. Yeah, and I, I think that that um, expansion creates another interesting challenge on the distribution side. I recently had dinner with the owner of a local uh, beer distributor, and he was talking about how when he first started, he's like, we pack a truck with seven beers, and we just have a bunch of them, right? Mm -hmm. He's like, now I have to I have to have available on my truck 150 different things for yeah. every single client I stop at. And so... It's it's an, it just totally changes the business model. It's crazy, and there isn't um, there isn't the brand loyalty that there used to be. Mm -hmm. You know, when I started, you had specific restaurants and taverns and stuff around the area around the state that, 
you know, might always have Manitou on or always have our Sleeping Bear Brown or one of the other, you know, and they would have it all the time and that would be it. And they might have a couple of faucets that they would rotate. Um, but now that's all out the window because everybody that sits at your, um, sits at your bar is going to tell you, you know, I just had this weird beer that's made from artichokes out of, you know, pig's knuckle, Arkansas, you ought to try and get that in, you know what I mean? Yep. So it changes. So it's really hard to, uh, for that, that loyalty is just kind of gone now. So you just have to work harder. And, and I would think too, that as you've expanded the palates of your customers, then their palates are constantly hungry for something different, mm-hmm. right? Like now, yeah. I, now I don't necessarily want to be loyal. I want to constantly be surprised. Right. Or have I want to be challenged. What's experience. new? That's the big thing. Everyone wants what's new, what's new. But, you know, but it seems to me that the sum of it is that we're replacing uh, global with local. You know, mm-hmm. at, at, you know at, at the end of the day, the aggregate, um, you know, demand is growing, I think, for craft. Mm-hmm. And so as a category, uh, it's far more popular than it was 15 years ago. And in spirits, we're at the very beginning of that. Uh, cycle and looking at the beer experience and the craft beer experience for lessons, but so are the national and global spirit players who looked at your competitors in beer, mm-hmm. your national and, and global competitors who probably, if they had to do it over again, would have reacted differently to the craft beer movement. I'm sure, and yeah. we're we're seeing that. We're seeing that happen in spirits. They're viewing you as a disruptor, and they're trying to learn from previous right. disruptions how to minimize the impact of that on their business. So how, how do you approach that? Well, you know, I guess our, advan- our advantage is, is our ability to innovate and, and quickly, you know, I think like beer 15, 20 years ago, the, the flavor palette, the boundaries around flavors were pretty narrow, mm-hmm. and and you guys blew the roof off of that. And in spirits, um, actually, we are you know are, you know one of our mantras is that we're returning spirit back to its origin, which was much more had much more flavor. So our vodka is an, a, a pretty rare um, un, un, unfiltered vodka in the Eastern European style, which brings. Mm-hmm flavor and texture and body back to vodka that is traditionally globally a more of a neutral spirit so we're 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 doing the same thing we're 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 showcasing um you know a a robust flavor profile in our spirits that people are are experiencing and 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 uh, experimenting with that's really cool so can you talk a little bit richard about the inspiration for ironfish and how it how it came to be? Well, we're named after the steelhead that run the Betsy River, and we're a working uh, landscape, um, farm landscape on a natural and scenic river protected under Michigan law. And the steelhead are a big part of this culture of this region, um, as are the salmon, which uh, actually uh, f- uh, go up the river first, and then the sa- and then the steelhead follow follow the salmon. So that process is just starting um, now, and uh, and we they return to their origin uh, after they're mature, and um, we wanted to recognize how how uh, uh, how inspirational they are to our product, um, but also wanted to be mindful of the fact that farms can also have a um, impact, a negative impact on the fisheries, and so we wanted to make sure that our farm was. Uh, following some pretty basic environmental standards, and I think both our farms are under the 
um, under uh, environmentally verified uh, mm -hmm. set of practices uh, through the state of Michigan. So that's that. That was the inspiration for the name of the distillery. So let's talk. We've talked kind of been hit, moving around this, but I just want to talk about the local impact of what you do and of kind of the expansion of the, the craft beverage industry locally. Um, what? How would if, if if you were talking to someone who'd never been here, how would you describe to them the impact that's had on on our local economy? Um, you know, I think it's had a really a substantial impact. We've had a lot of uh, a lot of uh, you know that's like we touched on earlier. It's People really want to not just get involved and enjoy the product. They want to know the people behind it. You know, they're looking for, um, you know, they're looking for the story. They're looking for the background. Um, they want to know that, you know, not only are they getting, you can go to the store and you can buy, you know, kind of industrial generic beer, but, you know, they don't have, there's no tie to it. There's no history. There's no emotional connection. And they, what they really want is they want to be able to say, you know, well, here's this beer, here's this vodka, here's this product that we get. Um, you know, it could be a loaf of bread. And this, the guy that owns this bakery is my neighbor, and he's a really cool guy. And, you know, he's got a beautiful garden, and they want to tell the story, and they want to, you know, they want to, they want to verify to themselves and others that, you know, this product isn't just good. It's good because this comes from a good person. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's really what people want that connection with. And, I mean, you're down in Thompsonville, right next near Crystal Mountain, right? Mm -hmm. So you kind of get tourism already in that area. But what kind of an impact do you think having Ironfish located there has had for that area? Well, one of the, you know, it was interesting because uh, some folks, we, we came in from uh, this as a region that was um, uh, originally, our, you know, a family connection uh, to my wife's family. But we didn't have our, our roots in this region. We came to this region to do this um, after my brother-in-law purchased the farm. And somebody came into the tasting room, uh, you know, a few months ago and said, gee, if you had actually been here, you might not have had the confidence to do this. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and we were, you know, I think unaware of that lack of confidence in making an investment. Other people have said, gee, you know, this makes sense what you've done up in the Lillanau Peninsula, but no one would have imagined doing it down in our region. So I think we've contributed to, I think one of the impacts that we've had is that it's, it's, it's helped to create a catalyst around confidence in the region. Mm -hmm. And, and the proof is, you know, when you drive down that dirt road and you see you know, literally on some, on some weekends, you could see literally a hundred cars and, and folks coming in. But the, the impact of that is that we've been able to hire a lot of young people with degrees from families in the region whose families, I think were pretty convinced that they would not see their kids uh, stay in the area. So that's been really, really um, gratifying. And the other thing is we're exporting a value-added product from North Manistee County into uh, about 1,000, maybe 800 to 1,000 retail locations in the state of Michigan and now in Illinois. So it's kind of fun to have a little manufacturing operation 
um, in Springdale Township. Yeah, that kind of walks us into the next question of how wide your distribution uh, network is outside this region. Are you just in Michigan or Richard is in Illinois? I know, John, you've got a canning line. How far out does do those cans go and where can where can our listeners buy your product? What stores can they walk into? We're Michigan only. We we um, we have distributors that sell our product draft and, and can product in every county, but um, just Michigan. What what distributors? I mean, what stores um, can we... we've got? Well, um, we sell wholesale, so we don't necessarily always know where the product is going. Um, but in our area. Um, all the Olson stores and Meyer stores, um, the um, Toms, uh, the party stores, and those places are you're, we're pretty much everywhere here locally. Yeah, same here. We're we're uh, we're in the stores throughout uh, the state of Michigan and in bars and restaurants on and off-premise accounts. And we have a zip code finder on our website where you can drop in your zip code, and uh, it'll pop up a little map of where you can buy Iron Fish. And also, people can always come to either of your tasting rooms as well. Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely. Yeah. And get the full experience with yeah. the farm. So. you got to go there to get the full experience. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I don't want to take a minute and talk about energy, since that's kind of what we do here mm-hmm. at Cherryland. Uh, you've both done some interesting and innovative things with energy at your facilities. Uh, and, and Richard, I think some of that comes from the infrastructure challenges that you had described at the beginning of the podcast. But in addition, your kind of commitment to sustainability. Can you talk about how you've approached what you're doing with energy at Ironfish? Well, first of all, and, and this is... Uh, this has been unbelievably helpful is that uh, Chairland Electric Co-op, uh, the, your expertise, Tony, and the folks in this, um, uh, in, in this utility have been advisors uh, on just about every move that we've made uh, and helping us make informed uh, decisions. Uh, we did start with a commitment around solar, um, which is net metered, um, and then when, as we decided to expand our operations and have been solely dependent primarily on, on propane, um, we've actually worked uh, with Cherryland to understand how cogeneration with electric and heat pump systems can actually lower utility costs. And we're also looking forward to participating, hopefully, in your program in the near future around EV power stations for, uh, for, for vehicles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad that you talked about propane, Richard, because a lot of our members are dependent on propane. And I think it's really important that they hear the message that there might be other options that allow them to be more efficient, to save some money, and um, to, to use to kind of fuel switch with that. So we, we try to get that message out, but we can't get it out enough that there are alternatives that we can we can help people with. I mean, we're only making bottom line decisions, and it was uh, when you folks walked us through the economics of it, it was a um, easy decision for us to make. That's fantastic. And um, John, I love how you guys get heat. Mm, yeah. Can yeah, you yeah. talk about that process? Yeah, we um, we are um, one of the reasons why we built our facility. Um, specific as a brewery as opposed to repurposing a building was that we really wanted to utilize some of the excess BTUs that come out of the brewing system and having the ability to do that we really needed in-floor heat to be installed so we installed that um, and then 
Um, we have a secondary heat exchanger system that we use in the brewery that harvests the, um, the extra heat that's generated from our, our cold room, our cold conditioning system, our cold tanks, and also our fermenters. And um, one of the byproducts of fermentation, other than the two that we really like, carbonation and alcohol, um, <laughs> is, the, uh, is the generation of a, quite, a, quite a number of BTUs. So in the wintertime, uh, or in the cooler months, we reroute that heat from the fermenters and from our, our cold room and, and, and all, everything that we're cooling in the building, and then route those BTUs into the floor. So in the wintertime, our, um, our furnace doesn't kick on unless it's below 29 degrees. So we, in the building phase, we, we added additional um, insulation, and we have that giant fan in our tap room to try and uh, keep the heat headed you know, more evenly throughout the building. But we have saved an enormous amount of money in, in natural gas just from that alone. And using a byproduct you already had. Yep, yeah. we already have it. I think that's really, just a super cool story. And yeah. I, I love when people are innovative with energy and open to creative solutions. I think that's really cool. Yeah, just think it through. We tell everybody our, the beer warms you up twice. And so <laughs> yeast is a good friend to have. So when you both kind of look into the future, 5, 10, 15 years, wh- where, where do you see your businesses and where do you see the industry? Well, I, I'm, I, I believe we're on the ground floor of participating in a uh, big disruption in the spirits industry, which I think will follow craft. And, um, you know, I'm looking forward in the next uh, f- five to ten years to walking into an on-premise account and looking not only at the tap handles, which will be dominated by local, um, uh, local and state breweries, but also the back bar being represented by Michigan Craft. So I think that's that's really the biggest uh, move is that uh, we think the tasting room is the spirit re-education camp. We say that to ourselves internally. Literally, people walk into our distillery and say, what do I do? I mean, they are like wide open, interested in exploring, and perhaps they've only been in one lane for a long time, one vodka or one scotch or or one whiskey, and they're opening it up. And they're going back to their towns and cities in Michigan and other places across the state and, 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 and thinking differently about local craft. That's really cool. And, mm. and John, where, where's, where are you in 15 years? Um, hopefully uh, enjoying summer a little bit more. Summer <laughs> is our busy time of year, of course. But, um, no, we're, we're continuing to expand and release more brands and products, and um, I would really like to see... Um, we're still the only agricultural brewery in Michigan, and I would love to see some. Um, we've had a lot of interest from other people that want to get in the industry and really want to do something more along our lines and uh, be in more of an agricultural setting. So I'd like to see um, you know some more of that happening in our state. Um, we're pretty fortunate. We've had quite a few, um, even breweries around the country and even out of the country that have contacted us and, and asked, you know, to help with certain things and some problems. But, um, but I'd like to see more people use, use what you got and use it effectively and efficiently and, uh, be smarter than the beers, I like to say. (laughs) What, What about politics as far as it comes towards regulation? You know, in our industry, the big utilities kind of dominate legislation and politics. And you've both talked about being disruptors. And the, the liquor lobby in Lansing is pretty strong and pretty big. And I imagine it's funded by all the people that you're disrupting. The, the big 
the big guys. So how do you guys play in the politics of regulation in Lansing, and or do you? Yeah, I, you know, it's been a big wake-up call for us to, uh, to come from outside of the industry and um, grapple with the regulatory environment in which we're attempting to um, uh, distribute. You know, for example, we, uh, the state regulates distribution and confines it to two players in the entire state up until about a year ago. And when we were uh, putting our business together, they would not even return our calls. Hmm. Um, and uh, so a, finally a third um, lobbied and probably uh, uh, you know, did, did what they could to get the legislature to open it up. And by opening it up, we were kind of welcomed into distribution. But there were delays just based on that. So we're really painfully aware of the fact that that behavior on the part of those two distributors was probably, um, you know, their attention deficit disorder was probably oriented around um, who, where they make their money, which is not from craft. Mm-hmm. And on the brewery scene? Um, well, since it started a little earlier for us, we are fortunate to have a really, a really great Brewers Guild in Michigan. And uh, they keep really close tabs on what's going on in Lansing, and they give us heads up and stuff. So we've got some really good, um, and because there's so many breweries and stuff now, they're um, gaining a fair amount of power. But even then, in our industry, you know, the big, big, the last big, big brewer in Michigan, which was Stroh's, is now, um, you know, we don't have any actual breweries that size in Michigan anymore so every all the breweries here are really craft although we do have some big ones but they're not the size of Stroh's was so um so I think we're 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 probably gonna be fine that's awesome yeah so we are uh, right up at the end of the podcast but I did want to ask one last question to each of you if someone were to wander into your establishment what is the one thing that you recommend that they must try well for us um we think that gin is the distiller's IPA, John. Oh, um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's no longer your father's gin, uh, which is <laughs> more right. of a juniper, pine orientation that people normally associate with gin. So our, uh, our Michigan Woodland Gin is what I would, I would recommend, and it's, uh, it's won the most international awards of our spirit line. And... Um, it's uh, quite unusual because it takes on more of a citrus and orange orientation rather than than a pine uh, from juniper, although there is juniper in it. And, uh, and that actually comes from our region. Uh, the concolor fir tree has an orange essence, and we harvest that with a tree farm called the Antioch Tree Farm in Mesick. Well, I'll tell you, gin is not normally my spirit of choice, but I think you just talked me into coming by to try it. <laughs> Good. You would have to. Yeah, and, that sounds and, amazing. And what should they try if they stop by Brewery Terra Firma, John? Um, I would say um, we just put a, a, a fresh infusion on yesterday, which is our, our um, Beehive Honey Blonde, which is our light-bodied summer beer that we produce. That All the honey comes from our hives in the south field, and we, um, we just infused it with... Um, local um peaches uh from uh gallagher's market Hmm. and um and then we infuse the 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 beer actually runs through all these big fresh chunked up peaches on the way to the faucet 
and uh, it is absolutely fabulous on a hot day. Oh, that sounds amazing. And we have plenty of hot days ahead, so you you heard it here first. No shortage. Swing by, yeah. Yeah, anything with fruit in it. Citrus gin, peaches in my beer. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, Tony, it sounds like you've got some more testing to do. <laughs> sounds, sounds, like it. Yeah. sounds like it. Well, thank you all for um, taking the time to join us and discuss this, and uh, best of luck as you continue with your businesses. Well, thank you for inviting us. Absolutely. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, yep. Tony. Thanks for taking the time. Very much appreciate it.